Well, it's always a challenge for me as I consider what to say on this, uh, what I consider a very sacred, solemn day. And there's uh, many passages in the Word of God that talk about suffering and persecution. And, but the one that the Lord brought my mind back to this week is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 10, 11, and 12. It's a very familiar passage on persecution. Maybe the most familiar passage in the New Testament on persecution. But I'd like for us to look at this passage again and consider how it applies to us who are not always persecuted or at least not persecuted as much as others. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we read that passage and it just doesn't seem to make sense at first glance why we would be happy to be persecuted for you. But Lord, Christ said we should be, we should rejoice and be glad because we're blessed. And so, Lord, we confess to you this is something that we're going to have to work through in our minds and our hearts this morning. So would you grant us grace by your Spirit to understand what Jesus meant by what he said here and that as we understand this passage better, Lord, we could respond to the little bit of persecution we might experience from time to time, but, but also better serve those who are experiencing horrific persecution, Lord, around the world, that this would fuel our prayers for them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned earlier that Every one of you should get uh, that Voice of the Martyrs magazine that would come to your mailbox once a month, but uh, they actually have another resource you can take advantage of, Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors. Uh, You can get a weekly email or an emergency update whenever something breaks out in some other part of the world regarding Christians. And for me personally, this is a, a great source of encouragement, a great source of challenge, a great uh, way to regain perspective because these things pop up regularly in my email box alongside my discount at PetSmart. You know, got to get some money off the dog food next time you go. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, coupon for, you know, your next meal at California Pizza Kitchen or... Um, you know, the Office Depot 
sale or, you know, what's happening to Dick's Sporting Goods. And I don't know if you're like me, I have a number of things I've signed up for to kind of keep getting updated on things that, that really, at the end of the day, when you think about it, are very trivial, very material. And then pops up in my email box something from Open Doors this week about a group of Coptic Christians who were headed uh, on a bus somewhere and the bus was stopped and they killed the Christians. They just shot them because they're Christians. I got another one about some unrest in Kenya where, again, some, uh, a busload of people were going somewhere and these um, radical uh, Muslims would stop the bus. They stopped the bus and they took everybody off and they divided the, the Muslims from the Christians and then um, the Christians that refused to recite the, the, the Islamic creed were shot and killed right there. In Pakistan, you may have uh, heard of that what has become a well-known case of this young gal who was uh, accused of blasphemy against Allah, and she was sentenced to life in prison and even uh, the death penalty, and she's been in jail, I guess, for some eight years now, and they released her for a lack of evidence, and the whole country erupted in, in all sorts of rioting because they let this gal off who was simply sharing the gospel with a coworker. And she was accused of blasphemy. And, and the whole country is up in arms. I don't know about you, but I need to be regularly reminded of these things. Because if not, I just get sucked into American culture and just silly life that we go about here in this country. Because those of us in the Western world have never experienced this kind of persecution and, and, and may, maybe never will. We, we've been sheltered for the most part from the raw reality of what the majority of the rest of the body of Christ around the world has to deal with on a daily basis. We're talking about 70% of Christians around the world deal with persecution on a daily basis. We are in the minority. See, we think that the rest of the world is like us, right? That Christians all over are, are kind of like us. No, very, very different from us. We are the minority. And so consequently, the, the stories, the images, the statistics that we read and are exposed to, they're, they're disturbing, yes, they're heart-wrenching, yes, but it all seems so surreal, it's, it's almost incomprehensible to us, we can't relate. And so when we're exposed to the plight of the persecuted church, typically our response is, is on the one hand a feeling of sorrow and, and pity, but at the same time, a, a sense of gratitude. We, because we don't know how to respond, I, I think we just default to the, oh, how sad, how unfortunate. Well, what a tragedy. We're so fortunate. We're so blessed as Americans to have the freedom that we have. I mean, these are the default responses. Because, frankly, we don't know what else to do. We don't know how else to respond. But when we consider the persecution of fellow believers, as shocking as this might sound, instead of feeling sorry for them, we should feel happy for them. And instead of of having pity on them, we should envy them. You say, how can you say that? Why would you say that? Well, I didn't say that, Jesus did. 
He said, they're the blessed ones. They're the fortunate ones. They're the ones who will receive the greatest reward in heaven. Their lives are far more in line with the great Christians of the past than ours. I think this is the perspective of persecution that Jesus said his followers should have. And he communicated this profound perspective here in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this was um, uh, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached there on the hillside above the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it begins with what is commonly called the Beatitudes from the Latin beatus, which means happy or fortunate. And in this section, Jesus described the characteristics of those who are truly blessed, those who are truly fortunate. They're poor in spirit. They they mourn. They're gentle. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful. They're they're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. In other words, if you want to experience true joy and happiness, then cultivate these inner qualities in your life. The blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The ironic thing about this list, however, is that they're they're the exact opposite of the things that the world says will make a person happy. So Jesus turned the world's value system upside down and inside out, and he challenged his followers to see things and to think about things differently, don't see things and think about things the way the world sees them and thinks about them See them and think about them the way God does. And from this final beatitude, in verses 10 through 12, we learn that God has a totally different perspective on persecution than we tend to have. In fact, of all the beatitudes, this last one seems the most contrary to our thinking and to our own experience. And that's why I've chosen to call it the paradox of persecution. The paradox of persecution. Now, Webster's dictionary defines a paradox as a statement contrary to common belief. A statement that seems contradictory, unbelievable, or absurd. But that may actually be true in fact. In other words, it is commonly believed that being persecuted is a sad, unfortunate thing to be avoided at all costs. That's how we typically think about persecution. We assume being happy and being persecuted are opposed to one another. To say that someone is blessed when they're persecuted not only seems contradictory, it seems absurd. And yet, according to Jesus, it's a true fact that should cause us to be overjoyed when we face persecution or when we see others facing persecution. Why? Because those who endure persecution experience the blessing of God. And in fact, Jesus actually highlighted two blessings, two specific blessings for those who are persecuted for following him which should cause us to rejoice whenever we are counted worthy to suffer shame for the cause of Christ, along with those of whom the world is not worthy. 
What are these two blessings? Well, first of all, it's, the first blessing is the certainty of conversion. The certainty of conversion. In, in other words, when we are persecuted, it means that we're truly saved. Notice what he says in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word blessed or blessed, the, the term that's used in every one of these verses over and over and over again, repeating this word. And it's a term used to describe a person who's especially favored by God, someone who is happy or fortunate. That's how we would define it in our vernacular today. This is, a, this is a powerful word, or this was a powerful word to those who heard it back in Jesus' day. To them, it meant far more than a feeling of happiness related to our present circumstances. That's what we normally have. I'm just blessed. I'm blessed. I'm just so blessed. And we usually think about our health. We usually think about our financial situation. We think about, you know, our family. We think about where we live, our house, our cars. We're, we're so blessed. But that word blessed back then was a... Yes, being wealthy, having lots of possessions, a large, healthy family, a full barn, defeated enemies. I mean, that, that was, a, you, you live a blessed life. But I think what was shocking to those who heard this for the first time, sitting on that sloped hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, was that in those days it was commonly believed among Jews that any kind of suffering or persecution was an indication of God's displeasure or judgment, that, that God's, what was the opposite of being blessed? You were being cursed. And so Jesus wanted to correct their wrong view of persecution. He said, no, it's the exact opposite. Those who experience persecution enjoy the blessing of God on their life. In fact, persecuted people are doubly blessed, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. But notice how Jesus clarifies this persecution, persecution as that being received for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In other words, you're not suffering because you're a jerk. You're, you're not suffering for your own sins or your own stupidity. There's no, there's no blessing in being ill-treated because you're rude or obnoxious or fanatical or hostile or insensitive or abrasive or somehow proudly or piously self-righteous. Jesus was referring to being persecuted for living a righteous life, doing and saying the right thing, regardless of whatever everyone else is doing or, or saying. See, a righteous life condemns the unrighteousness around it, and it brings out the hostility in unrighteous people. People can't stand a righteous person because it exposes their own unrighteousness. It makes them feel bad. And eventually they'll do whatever it takes to get rid of you. I mean, that's how it's always been. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, back in Genesis 
chapter 4, which um, John, by the way, gives a commentary on in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? In other words, why did Cain kill Abel? Because his deeds were evil, his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So Cain didn't like the way he felt convicted when he was around his brother. And so rather than repenting of his unrighteousness, he thought, I'm just going to get rid of the righteous brother, and then I won't feel so bad. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I guess, well, we should start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, talking about suffering for righteousness' sake. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? I mean, there's no credit if you sin and you're harshly treated. But if when you do what is right and suffer, you patiently and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Peter 3, verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are, what? Blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing right, what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And so Peter was affirming what Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 5. And the reason why he was able to do that is because he was actually sitting there listening to this original sermon. And he had had an opportunity himself to learn how to deal with persecution and, for being, and suffering for righteousness' sake. And now he was encouraging his fellow believers who were scattered all over Asia experiencing all sorts of fiery trials and persecution. But notice back in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? Why should you, why are they blessed? Why, why are they blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which, by the way, the Beatitudes begin and end with the promise of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted uh, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking here about eternal life. He's talking about going to heaven. And God will ultimately bless persecuted believers with the privilege of spending eternity in his presence. And I think what's inherent in this phrase here, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it's simply this, a willingness to endure persecution for Christ is one of the surest, most tangible evidences that a person is truly saved and is on their way to heaven. This gave Paul hope 
that the Thessalonians, the believers in Thessalonica were on their way to heaven, that, that these pagan worshiping or, or, or idol worshiping pagans who had been radically converted, uh, he was convinced that they were saved, that they were, his, they were God's chosen people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he said, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Paul was saying, I'm convinced that God chose you for salvation. Paul, how could you be so convinced? You can't know who God has elected and who he's not. He says, how, how do I know that? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They experienced persecution and trial because of their commitment to Christ, but they had joy in the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So they endured all sorts of hostility. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So Paul said, hey, I'm convinced that you guys are saved because of how you have faithfully endured persecution. Now, let's be careful here. Jesus was not implying that we can earn our way to heaven by enduring persecution. There are some in the church today that would say that's part of the process of getting to heaven is you've got to suffer, not only in this life, but in the life to come in a kind of a a mediator period, a place called purgatory, You have to suffer and earn your way to heaven. Well, that's not at all what Jesus was saying. We don't earn our way to heaven by enduring persecution. He was simply saying that our willingness to endure persecution proves the genuineness of our faith in Christ. And again, Peter made this clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter was just simply saying, hey, I know you're being persecuted. But continue to rejoice in that because it's, it's, it's testing your faith. And it's, in fact, evidencing, it's proving that you are truly saved. The point is this. You can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day. You can give money to charity. You can teach a Sunday school class. You can sing in the choir. You can feed the homeless and still not go to heaven. 
That's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do this? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. There'll be lots of people who have done all these things who will be refused into heaven because they were never truly saved. But I would say this, none who suffer for righteousness will be left out of heaven. Why? Because suffering and persecution is the line of demarcation between a believer and an unbeliever. I mean, it's real easy to find out who's really saved and who's just faking it. Just put a gun to their head and say, renounce Christ or die. And those who aren't truly saved, they'll quickly renounce Christ to spare their lives. But the others who are truly saved, they'll stand strong and pay the consequences. See, only those who are are genuinely saved are willing to lose their life for Christ's sake. Persecution separates the wheat from the tares. And frankly, that's why the American church could use a good dose of persecution. Because in other parts of the world, listen, the people that are coming to church every Sunday, they're legit. They're really saved because they're putting their life on the line to go to church. And I think why we have so many weeds among the wheat in the American church is because it doesn't cost us anything to come to church. So it's easy to show up and kind of play the part and never really be a true believer. And so Jesus said, hey, you're blessed. You're blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake because you have the certainty of conversion. In other words, it's, it's evidence that you're truly saved and you're on your way to heaven. That's a blessing. Not everybody can say that. Not everybody has that hope. Not everybody has that confidence. But there's another blessing here, and that is the certainty of compensation. The certainty of compensation. Not only does experiencing persecution mean that you're on your way to heaven or it means that you're truly saved. It also means you're going to be greatly rewarded there. You're going to be greatly rewarded there. Notice he says, Blessed are you, verse 11, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. Not only are you going to get there, or be there, but your reward there is going to be great. Did you notice one word in verse 11? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, as opposed to if. See, for the true Christian, it's not a matter of if we'll be persecuted, but when and how. And we need to understand that as, as someone who has committed our lives to follow Christ, we have committed ourselves to a life of suffering and persecution if God so chooses. And Jesus made that clear all, all over the place, in the Gospels and the Apostles as well, made that clear that, that, that if you associate with Jesus, you will suffer like Jesus did. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by all because of my name. 
but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. John 15, verse 20. Again, the words of Christ. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul was one who knew much about suffering. And uh, he often included teaching about suffering in his letters to the churches in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here be to be in me. In other words, being a Christian doesn't mean just believing in Jesus, but also suffering for Jesus. We don't often include that in the gospel. Hey, are, are you willing to not only believe in Jesus, but are you willing to suffer for Jesus? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, No one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass as you know. In other words, it says, believers, we are destined to be persecuted. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. And I love what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This was another passage I considered preaching on this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at also the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Listen, history confirms that ever since the church began, the world has persecuted Christ's followers. That's just what the world does to Christ's followers. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we may be ridiculed or criticized or rejected because of our faith in Christ. We shouldn't be shocked to hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ being beheaded because they refuse to recite the prayers to Allah. It shouldn't shock us. It's like, oh yeah, that's what Jesus said was going to happen to us. The question is, if we never experience any sort of persecution of any kind, I think we would have a reason to, to wonder whether or not we're even saved. Or maybe not living a godly, not godly life. 
We're not creating any waves with those around us. Paul actually said one of the ways we gain assurance that we are truly saved is suffering for Christ's sake. In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, notice he says this, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, the mark of a true Christian is that they suffer with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, someone I'm sure you've all heard of, he was a Lutheran minister back in the days of Nazi Germany, and he suffered greatly for his stand for Christ, in fact was ultimately executed by the the Nazi regime, but this is what he said about suffering. He said this, quote, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memorandum drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. He goes on, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. And if you're familiar with church history, you know that Christians, both in the past and even now in the present, and in the present who have been called by God to suffer the most severely for their faith, they all have one thing in common. They consider it a joy, they consider it a privilege to be persecuted for Christ's sake. Remember the apostles when they were told not to preach Christ any longer and the authorities flogged them, beat them? And it says in Acts 5.41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They just got beat and they left with joy in their hearts, a smile on their face that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ. In other words, they rejoiced. They did what Jesus said to do. They were were applying the Sermon on the Mount. They were rejoicing. It brought them great joy to suffer for claiming the name of Christ. It made them happy. That phrase there, rejoice and be glad, verse 12, literally means to skip and jump with happy excitement. When's the last time you maybe got sideways with someone because you were just trying to do the right thing and say the right thing and you were standing up for Christ and they made it clear that they didn't appreciate that and they maybe said something to you or snubbed you or, or something and you walked away skipping, kind of skipped away happy about it. Instead of going, oh man, I can't believe, oh, this is bad, this is not good, oh, you know, he didn't like me, you know, I'm not going to get that promotion, I'm not, whatever, right? Rejoice and be glad. How 
paradoxical this response is. What in the world could possibly produce this kind of joyful reaction in the midst of brutal persecution? Two things. Rejoice and be glad. For, number one, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's two things there. There's two fours, two reasons why you should rejoice and be glad. The first one, I'm going to deal with the second one first. It's realizing you're in good company. That you're considered part of an elite group of faithful saints throughout the ages who stayed true and stayed strong in the midst of persecution. The Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Stephens, the Pauls, the, the men listed in Hebrews chapter 11, these men of faith who endured all sorts of persecution for the cause of Christ, you're in good company. And secondly, he says your reward in heaven is great. You'll be greatly rewarded by God in heaven. Suffering for Christ earns huge eternal dividends in heaven. Paul mentioned this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he said this, For, consider that, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com- be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Those who suffered the greatest persecution will receive the greatest reward. See, the world can take a lot of things from us. They can take our family, they can take our job, they can take our possessions, they can take our health, they can take our freedom, they can even take our life. But the one thing that the world can never take away from us is our reward in heaven. Amen? That's the paradox of persecution. And that's why, beloved, I think we have it all wrong. We shouldn't sit here this morning feeling sad for persecuted believers. We shouldn't pity them. As strange as it sounds, we should envy them. And if there's anything that we should be sad about this morning, it's us. We're the ones to be pitied. I think we, the American church, are are far greater tragedy than the persecuted church in other parts of the world. This is the tragedy right here. And what I mean by that is I wonder if what happens in churches around North America on IDOP Sunday showing these videos of the persecuted church and what they're enduring and they're showing their stories and we sit here and we watch these things and and it breaks our heart and 
it grieves us and we, we, we pray for them. I wonder if videos were shown in some of these persecuted regions in their churches and they showed videos of us and what our life is like as Christians here in America. I wonder how they would respond if they saw us just kind of freely walking into church with our Bible under our arm, comfortably sitting in our cushioned chairs, wanting to be entertained most often, critiquing everything from the music to the sermon to the person's outfit in front of us, half-heartedly singing songs that we've sung a hundred times before, sleepily listening to God's word preached while at the same time trying to figure out where we're going to go to lunch, complaining about our petty problems and slandering our fellow believers and gossiping about them and fighting over silly things and being preoccupied with material things, oblivious to the desperate condition of those outside the church who are lost and dying without Christ. I imagine that our brothers and sisters in Christ would probably weep for us for a different reason. And they would feel sorry for us. And they would consider us the tragedy. I don't say that to give us all a guilt trip. But to try to make the point, I think that Jesus was making here, that this is radical. This is paradoxical. We aren't the blessed ones, they are. And I think by associating with them, whether it's simply by receiving an email once a week or a newsletter on a monthly basis, that's our way to associate with them and remember them and involve ourselves with them. Guess what? I think we'll be blessed as a result. And I could just speak from experience that I, don't, I can't think of anything that has blessed me more in my Christian life than thinking about, hearing about, watching, reading stories of persecuted Christians. It's inspiring. And it truly is a blessing to know that we're on the same team as these guys. What, a, what an honor, what a joy, what a privilege. And may we serve them well as they serve us well. Let's do that by praying for them right now. Father, we do want to pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are enduring things that, Father, we have never endured and probably never will endure. And we shouldn't feel guilty that, that we're in America and they're not. Lord, you're sovereign over suffering. You're sovereign over persecution. And you saw fit to put us here so that we could support those who are in other places where it's not as easy to be a Christian. 
And Father, I pray that we wouldn't be motivated today out of guilt to get involved. But Lord, it would be our joy, our privilege to be involved with the lives of these people. Lord, that we're going to spend eternity in heaven with. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful on our end to do our part to the building up of the body of Christ worldwide. Thank you for the the privilege and the honor it is to, to support these precious saints through our prayers and through our financial gifts and, Lord, even just talking about them and and letting their radical commitment to Christ rub off on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.